welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for another episode of our community podcast. Time to meet our community, the Hispanic business community here in Orange County, and those they work with on a regular basis. Powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio, streaming live from our studios here at the University of California, Irvine's Beal Applied Innovation, with the most innovative guy I know. He knows everybody. Who'd you bring today here? Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome to our community podcast show powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Thank you all for tuning in again with us on our show here. Uh, I'm your host, Senior Vice President John Gutierrez. And uh, again, we have another great uh, leader in the community, uh, someone that we're honored to have today on the show, Dr. John Saito, uh, who is the top doctor, one of the top doctors in pulmonary and sleep of OC uh, in the last three years. He's been honored by elected leaders for his work and generous contribution during the pandemic. He's also was honored by a celebration of heroes for his work to help raise awareness and prevent the spread of COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Saito. Thank you for having me. So one of the things we like to do, Dr. Saito, is, is, get, is get to know you uh, a little bit about how did you end up as a doctor, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your story, because we have, as you know, we have a mentorship program here, and, and a lot of our listeners are also our youth chamber. So can you share with us a little bit how you became a doctor? Tell us a little bit about your family, if you don't mind sharing that. Sure, I'd be happy to. It's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. But uh, I started my academic career wanting to be an artist, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, I had good family. Uh, my mom of course, thought maybe you should consider another occupation, you know, <laughs> this might not be the one that's most rewarding for you, but she said it in the most gentle way. Okay. So she allowed me to start with art, and then in the summer of my college, I actually took a month to go travel and uh, learn about European art, and so my mom said, you know, I'll be happy to come with you. So it was a mother and son trip through Europe. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, I took her around Paris and Giverny, and, you know, I was fascinated with uh, the Impressionists. And so we ended up in Montmartre in Paris. And so in this area, there was all kinds of artists, street artists. Okay. Yeah, they were just amazing. And so I would ask them, you know, and what I found out was they were all university-trained artists. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so my mom was in her subtle way said, and where are they now? <laughs> that didn't quite sink in quite right away until I got home. And then I started to realize, maybe I should also have a backup. So that kind of led me to medicine, you know. So uh, that was one route that uh, fortunately turned out well. And so now art is uh, a passion and avocation. Oh, great. So you still like to... Paint? Yes, yes, okay. yes, I do. I do something called art in medicine. Basically, it's a visual diary of, you know, becoming a physician. Okay. So that's kind of unique because it's kind of art, uh, when it comes to medicine, usually comes from the outside. Someone else is portraying it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But to actually live the training, the learning, the experience, and what I find is really the art in medicine is the high contact, high touch, and not necessarily high tech. Mm -hmm. Although we are increasingly uh, appreciating the value, but it kind of 
dehumanizes that healing, unique uh, human experience, right? Mm -hmm. That we call medicine or healing. So, you know, uh, I kind of combine those two things in terms of healing and, and art and try to uh, approach people from both sides of our brain, if, as you will, right? Because we're so kind of detached and that, that made it worse uh, during the COVID pandemic where we're even more detached from other people and especially our healthcare providers. So do you find that art is therapeutic for you? Oh, 100%. This is, you know, something that during my uh, training, during my various places that I've been, you know, I've been director of pulmonary and allergy at uh, um, Scott and White in Texas Mm -hmm. A&M. And so as a division chief, I kind of initiated an art program. So, you know, for people who are stuck in the hospital for a long time, it's really difficult for them to heal and recover, especially in a hospital settings without windows, you know. Yeah. So the idea of engaging their brain in a creative endeavor really actually helps and actually studies show people who do art actually can get out of the hospital sooner, a day or two sooner than those who don't. Interesting. Yeah, so it has therapeutic potentials, and for the bean counters, it also has a cost-benefit potential. Yeah, that's that's actually really good to know. Um, I know you mentioned COVID, um, which is something we're going to go into because, from my understanding, you were very involved uh, during the whole pandemic, during COVID, uh, as far as you know, your team, um, uh, other people in the community that you were involved with. Can you share with us what that? was like from a physician's point because obviously our listeners we saw it from a different perspective but from a physician standpoint can you just share what that was like for you yeah i think uh, you know there was a lot of lack of information not that it wasn't available but uh, you need to do your own research in order to get that information and we needed to look Elsewhere, meaning that, you know, uh, as a lung specialist, I was very uh, attuned to what's happening to other countries before it hit the U.S. So, you know, from a human perspective, this is us against the virus, whether you're from another country or otherwise. So it's important for us to look uh, and learn what's happening in other places. And so uh, I became aware of how this virus worked and how it infected you and how after the infection you have this post-inflammatory process that is really what was deadly to most people who were at risk. Unfortunately, the data isn't obviously available during that context when it hit us and it became this crisis, right? But um, what I perceive was a gap in our care for our community, especially the fragile, um, you know, seniors or people who are at risk, is that while we say, um, you know, if it affects you and if you have mild symptoms, then stay home. And if you went to the emergency room and if you didn't have low oxygen level, it's okay to go home and watch. But the problem is, what does that mean when you watch someone whose lungs are filling up with fluid? Right? How would you know that they're going bad until they're really about to drop dead? Mm-hmm. And so this is the day that, that, that we were seeing is by the time people present to the emergency room within 24, 48 hours, they were intubated. 
And so, you know, their chance of surviving intubation was about 50%. So, you know, as a prevention strategy, we need to look earlier in the process, intervene earlier in the process, educate earlier in the process, right? Especially in the context of not having enough ventilators, ICU beds, right? So those were the things that actually hurt people or killed people was the uh, access to care. But where the gap occurred was the prevention at home. So that's kind of where I focused on early in the pandemic was to educate those who are taking care of uh, fragile family members. If uh, someone's infected, how do you prevent the infection from spreading at home? If you imagine how contagious this was, if someone went to the emergency room and was sent home, how many other family members are going to be infected? So this has happened, and this happened to my patients as well, where, you know, a whole family gets infected. But, you know, two of the more fragile ones get hospitalized and one dies. Yeah. Yeah, so it's devastating. And so that was where the focus of that intervention occurred was, you know, can we get out, you know, gloves, hand sanitizer, mask, face shield, for that critical period of time, the first uh, five to seven days to see if things materialize, if you're going to be one of those low percentage, but if it's not low percentage, if you're high risk, right? Mm-hmm. So there's some miscommunication as to, well, you know, what does low percentage mean? Well, if you're young, healthy, and have a good immune system, that's low percentage. But if you infect your parent, your grandparent who have diabetes, who have heart disease, mm-hmm. who had, you know, kidney failures. Well, that's not low percentage. Your risk goes up tremendously. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my focus during the pandemic was to provide education to the community, especially to those who don't have access to, to care. And, and unfortunately, the Hispanic community is one large community that I take care of as well and there's a language barrier uh, and so we try to do our best to overcome those barriers it's interesting it's interesting that you mention um the hispanic community and providing education for them because i know there's been a lot of um uh, businesses that are part of our chamber that are always trying to market to the hispanic community right and there's certain communities that we have challenges being able to market or educate right um, because they don't have access to internet, right? You can't just email them the information, right? Some of them may not have smartphones, right? They have still like flip phones or something, right? Um, and I remember talking to other businesses and they're like, hey, we're posting flyers and paper information, uh, you know, like at the local uh, laundromat where they're going in there, right? Just to educate them because they're there doing their laundry. So these are, you got to almost out of the box, like you say, figure out a way how we com- communicate with certain particular Hispanic communities that are maybe low income, right? And they can't afford to be able to have internet for their kids or their families, right? And right. getting that communication can be a challenge. Right, 100%. You know, the data now that we have some certainly shows that the minority communities are at an increased risk of uh, morbidity and mortality. And so there's a disparity based on access and information. 
So one of the things that we did or participated in was a several food drive with the the Rotary Club, and so this is where we were able to provide education. Uh, and of course, during that time, you know, with the food crisis, uh, everybody came out because they needed the help. And so this was a channel to kind of think out of the box and to educate people and you know be available for them to call if they have questions. Because during that time, if you call the emergency room, good luck. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to call your doctor, that is, if they were open and if they were not in a panic as well. Of course. Yeah, so we were... That's you know, great. So the food banks became one of those, I guess you could say, platforms, right? Where they were coming to pick up food. Meanwhile, maybe you were providing information for them yes. to take back with them. That's great. That's good to know. Yes, absolutely. They, you had thousands of people coming through, right? Right. And they have nothing, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's really providing the at least the basic tools to protect themselves so share with us a little bit about obviously you specialize in sleep apnea for those of those listening share with us you know what is that what you specialize in so those that are listening if there's anybody out there that they have a family member that's dealing with this because this is a key component right that that can have effects with like copd and chf and other things like that that have to do with congestive heart failure right yes so you know, what is sleep apnea? So apnea means a pause in breathing, right? Where you completely obstruct your airway. So in our community, many people snore. Mm-hmm. And so because many people snore, and it's common, people think common is normal. Mm-hmm. The reality is that's not the case. When people snore and they obstruct to the point where their oxygen goes down, really they're hypoxic, right? getting less oxygen than they normally do. So think about holding your breath Mm -hmm. at night, right? For some people, they may hold their breath for a minute, two minutes, and their oxygen is okay, say if they're swimming. But if they hold their breath and their oxygen drops below what's considered normal, 92%. Mm -hmm. You know, during COVID, if your oxygen dropped below 94%, we would say go to the emergency room and you'll probably be getting oxygen and hospitalized. But uh, even now, outside of COVID, there are lots of people who are struggling with their sleep and not breathing well, and their oxygen drops dramatically. But they're just not aware of it, especially in the uh, Hispanic community. So bringing this back to COVID a little bit, where um, what what they found was the rate of dying from COVID increases to two to three times normal if you had sleep apnea. So what that means is if your lungs are already flooded and going bad, imagine trying to sleep at night and obstructing and not getting enough oxygen. Well, that's going to really cause your heart to fail, your kidneys to go bad, so your brain to not get enough oxygen. So uh, this is occurring during acute illness, and this is also occurring chronically. So um, I think there's a lack of awareness in the community to look at your sleep health. So one of the things I tell my patient is that there is no health unless you have sleep health. Paul had a question. I do here. Um, I I have to point out that John, you got John choked up here just thinking about this. He's having trouble (laughs) breathing here. He had to step out of the room I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) One of the things in all the talks and shows we did on COVID, 
COVID comes in through your nose, your mouth, whatever, and it goes, as long as it stays in their upper respiratory, you don't get as sick. It's when it gets into the lungs that it affects your oxygen level, your oxygen level crashes. In many cases, that's what leads to death. Is that the kind of prog- progress that, if it stays in the upper respiratory tract, there's one thing, once it gets into your lungs, then it can develop into something more serious. Again, depending on your condition and underlying conditions and all that stuff. Right. So this is how it usually um, works is, you know, whether you inhale it through your lungs, or I'm sorry, through your nose or through your mouth, and it actually can infect your mucous membrane, like your eyes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's why... So touching your eyes, getting, putting your finger up your nose, getting it up your nose, getting in your thing, it's all that upper, from your neck up, that upper, upper respiratory well, tract. In there. general, that's the route of entry. Like, how does it get into your system? If you have an open wound, it will get into your system. So, you know, you have barrier defenses, right? The issue is the amount of virus that gets replicated in your airway, in your upper airway, is what we call it, in your nose. So it's really hard to not inhale viruses when you are infected in your nasal airway. So, so for example, in the beginning, we're worried about touching things. I'm still worried about touching. I'm still doing fist bumps because I'm afraid to shake hands. But that's only if I put my hand into my mouth my eyes, my nose, and it gets into the mucous membrane there. That's correct. That's correct. So good hands uh, sanitizing will be helpful. You know, the data for COVID is that it's pretty fastidious on the surface, and it may last for, you know, 24, even 48 hours, depending on the surface, depending on the temperature. So just like any viruses, you know, certain environments are hospitable and other are not hospitable. And I'm assuming that warm is good that makes it breed better than cold uh, or is that the opposite well the extremes where the extremes are warm or cold right because we assumed like the flu when it got hot <clears throat> it would go away it didn't go away well the flu doesn't go away because it's hot it's because it's hot that we go outside ah, okay. and so we're not close together and breathing each other's air so you know during the virus i kind of make a joke like you know how you can get infected? If you were in an elevator and someone farts. <laughs> yeah, That's a very vivid picture. There I, I you, can see that now. That's just down to earth, right? If you're right. smelling it, that means you're the infected. chance of you yeah, inhaling a virus particle is very high. So I get two more questions while John's recovering his throat. Interesting. Let, let me finish this. So yeah. this is where the N95... You know, the idea is when we're doctors, when we do N95 testing, we actually will do the test, get a fit, have a seal, and we actually, they put a particulate that you can smell. And if you smell it, that means your mask is insufficient. Ah, So it gives ah. you some idea of just how we should be approaching it you know, from the medical standpoint. That's a whole other issue. We should do a whole show on how to wear a mask, uh, or they should have done that time, because people were doing stuff that didn't have enough layers to it or didn't have enough tightly woven fibers together so stuff's getting through. Or, even crazier, they had the right mask, and they're putting it below their nose. Correct. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I'll be happy to talk more about the, those details, because the devil is in those details when you're yeah. dealing with something that can be deadly. And so it's important to pay attention to those Well, let's things. bring John back, and he looks like he's ready to go. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I apologize. <laughs> you know, I think it's important that we, again, remind people that you're a specialist in sleep apnea because the fact that you're a specialist in that area 
you have that ex- that expertise in pulmonary, right? Which is a key component of what COVID-19 was affecting, right? And everybody keeps asking on Twitter, what's pulmonary? That's anything to do with the lungs, right? That's correct. Okay. So whether it's asthma or COPD, uh, even pulmonary vascular, something like pulmonary hypertension. Okay. But really what I tell people is, you know, in our current modern medicine, everything's separated as if the lungs is separate from the heart, is separate from the kidneys, is separated from the brain. Uh, separated from your blood vessel. That's really not the case. What I present is... It's a system. We all want to view it as I go to my heart doctor, then I go to my lung doctor, pulmonary doctor, then I go to my foot doctor, and I go to my uh, brain doctor, as if they all exist in a separate system. Correct. So what I present is what I call a unified theory. If one system is going bad, it's like having termites in your house. If your kitchen is falling down, you just think the other parts of the house are immune? It's really unlikely. If something is causing... This is really choking John. John's just whipping through this stuff here. I'm so sorry. Last question, and then I'll shut up. Is sleep apnea on the rise? Because I know more and more people that suddenly wear the devices and the whole thing. I don't, but I I do snore. And my wife keeps saying, why did you get one of those things? I don't know when to decide who tells you this is severe enough that you're stopping breathing. Do you have to go through a test to do this? Or, or is it just people are being precautious, taking precautionary tales and slapping these things on now because they're advertising them? Oh, you know, I'm really happy that it's becoming... Uh, that people about. are yeah talking about it more and people come becoming more aware of it. Um, but, you know, we can do something as simple as just screening. If you're snoring at night, you have dry mouth, if you're waking up to go pee, if you wake up and you have headache, if your battery doesn't feel charged, (laughs) right, as it used to be, then something's going on in that sleep. And as a sleeper, you're usually the last one to know. Yeah. So you want to trust your partner. And if your partner is giving you the elbow sign, if you know what that is, Right. right, that's trying to wake you up because you stopped breathing or you're snoring so loud that they can't sleep. And uh, the next sign is called the leg sign, where they kick you out of the room. <laughs> give you the so if you're sleeping in the other room, your chances of having sleep apnea, I would say, is high. That's kind of on the the uh, home scale, right? It's interesting you bring that up. Somebody at an event recently talked about the importance of that eight-hour period. That there's studies, and you can correct me here, of course, you're the specialist. There's studies that... It's like into your second hour of sleep, right? There's certain components that you're now hitting, right, as you're sleeping. And that if you don't get that eight hour sleep, you're not really hitting those you're not hitting those key components of oxygen in your brain. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so the when, sleep cycle, REM yes, and all this stuff. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, again, I'm happy to talk more about it, but I'll kind of give it in brief. So when we sleep, we undergo kind of a cycle. Just think of it like the washing machine. Oh, okay. Right? So it That's kinda, interesting. That's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, and it fits very well because when you go into light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, you cycle in and out of this about every 90 minutes. 
So why do we do that? Everybody does that. All human beings do that, right? And so what's happening is that when you go into the lighter and deeper sleep, your body's kind of going to a restoration phase where growth hormones, all these things are kind of calming down. So your blood pressure should be going down. Your heart rate should be going down. Your breathing, your oxygen should be easy. This is the, you know, repair phase. Somebody said your temperature actually goes down. Too. It does um, go down, you know, to some degree in some parts of the night. So after you've kind of rinsed and agitated and <laughs> right uh, i then, do a lot of agitating i don't know if i'm rinsing enough here uh, right <laughs> well the devil's in this detail and you won't know that unless you do a sleep study but you know when you enter rem sleep you know your eyes move rapidly and if we didn't know and we just looked at your brain it looks like you're awake hmm. because your heart rate starts to go up you're actually having this vivid dream so if someone wakes you up from REM sleep you have all these crazy dreams with you know basically you're on a trip right wow yeah but really what's <clears throat> happening is your brain after it's organizing is running some mock trials so you hear the saying you know when you encounter a difficult problem what do they say let me sleep on it mm -hmm. right so there's kind of good stories where people wake up and say eureka i found the reason the answer <laughs> right yeah that's so you, interesting your, wow your brain is not a computer or a tv that just turns off when you sleep this is your restoration drive it restores your brain and your body and your function when it comes to kids it helps with their neural networking so it's a whole nother topic on how our kids' brains are changing because of the environment that they're under. Is there a cultural difference in sleep? Do some cultures sleep better? Is it is it economically, if there's more people packed in the house, is it hard to sleep? Or are there some people that value sleep more? Or there, I, I don't know. Is there a difference between one community and the next? Well, what they find is, you know, if you were um, in a community that has low light, meaning that you don't have access to bright lights, right? And you follow the sun, which is what our circadian rhythm is based on. Right. Interesting. Right. So that is what we call biologic, our biologic night and our biologic day. But in our reality now, our biologic night is really compressed, where, you know, uh, instead of getting seven hours to nine hours of night, we are getting four or five mm. especially our teenagers are getting you know five and they might need nine under those conditions the brain will not develop properly and their ability to function is going to be severely impaired but this is going underneath people's awareness but imagine if you were a senior who's struggling with early dementia or Alzheimer's or kind of neural uh, deficits, right? Imagine not getting enough sleep, but also not getting enough oxygen when they're sleeping. Well, that's going to accelerate their decline. It's going to accelerate these termites that are eating at all these organ systems that, you know, will wreck the uh, family and the community. And so our goal really is, when it comes to sleep, is to learn more and put things into context. So everybody has a little bit of information, and many times people come see me, and, you know, if they have access to the Internet, I say, Dr. Google knows a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but you want Dr. Saito to put it in the context. Yes, yes, exactly. How do they get a hold of you, Dr. Saito? Because I know 
our show is only 30 minutes and obviously we can only cover bits and pieces but you've covered a lot of great information how do they get a hold of you i mean obviously they can google you right do you have a website people can come find you yes if you go to mysleepmd.com okay mysleepmd.com right and this will be where you know all that information is available for you to uh, review and to reach out to me my practice is in fountain valley okay yeah it's called pulmonary and sleep disorder consultants Oh, great. Are you nearby Fountain Valley Hospital in that area over there? Or? I'm right across from the emergency room of above the dialysis unit. No way. Okay. Yes. That's good to know. All right. Yeah, we, we've, um, you know, we've covered a lot today, but I think it's important that everybody, again, understands we're here with John Saito, Dr. John Saito, who is a top doctor in pulmonary and sleep here in Orange County. In the last three years, he's been honored. Um, through many, many Community Heroes Awards by the Celebration of Heroes uh, organization, which I know you mentioned, there's a great website they can also go to there, right? Celebration of Heroes of a lot of doctors that came together to just fight this whole unfortunate situation with COVID, right? Right. Yeah, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to talk again about long COVID and how that's affecting our community. And so I know we don't have time we, to go. We got about it. five minutes. You want to share oh. a little bit about that right now? That, that'd be great if we can cover that topic. Sure, sure. What are we seeing long term now with the after effects? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the data shows that in people who are infected once, twice, three times, as many as five times, right, the general thinking that is wrong is that, oh, I've survived it once. Mm. Getting it again, I'll be okay. But the data shows every time you encounter this virus, uh, specifically the spike protein, you are taking more and more hits to your system. Wow. Yeah, so you, whether it's your heart or It's like your, earthquakes that are just hitting you huh, and, and affecting you. Yeah, so I, I kind of have mm. a fun um, kind of analogy. It's like, uh, you know, especially for kids, they know how to play video games. Mm-hmm. And so they have these health points when they're playing these fighting games, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they get hit, they know the health point goes down. That's true. Right. Yeah. So do you want to encounter your next opponent when you have the lowest health point? Or do you want to identify how to rejuvenate those health points before the next wave, before the next flu, the next COVID season, the next RSV season, right? Because it's really about how your health is to handle these infections, these challenges that often, you know, will cause more problems. So when it comes to long COVID, what we find is that the people who are more severely debilitated will struggle with uh, ongoing chronic illnesses. So the people I take care of, they've survived the hospitalization. And what I find is, you know, when the lungs are injured and they heal, not all of it heals back to normal lung tissue. A lot of it scars. Interesting. And scars don't work when it comes to the lungs. Right, so our goal is to avoid the scarring or the fibrosis of the lungs, mm-hmm. right? But again, these are people, you know, who are at high risk, and COVID will tell you who is high risk, right? But unfortunately, many people will suffer in silence because they're just not aware that they took that hit. So I have some people who come and said, "Oh yeah, COVID was mild, except their lung function is not normal." Mm. Yeah, and so I've seen this with my patients as well, where they have COPD or asthma and they take COVID, and all of a sudden their lung function dropped 20 points. Wow. Yeah, and they're not getting that back. And is that because the lung 
once it gets uh, scarred, isn't as resilient. It isn't as flexible. It's it becomes. It's taking a beating, like you said, right? It's it, kind of like what happens in smoking, right? Your your lungs get scarred. They get uh, they don't they're they're not elastic. That's the word I'm looking for. They they don't. Uh, yeah, that's respond. the lung mechanics. This is even worse. It just doesn't work. So you need the lungs to be able to oxygenate. And so if it's not able to oxygenate, you just have scar. So, so I, I want to ask this before we go. So would you advise anybody that's listening that has a family member or someone they know that has been through COVID or has been, they should come see you, right? Because they should obviously get some, I don't know, test reading, done. Reading on their lungs. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? To see how they're doing their lung function. Is that something that you would recommend? Because I've never heard anybody say that. The assumption is once you have it, it gets you get stronger you build up a resistance to it and therefore the second third fourth infection which i know some people have had you worry less and less about it it's like getting the flu or something but you're saying it could leave some residual damage here. right so everything's in the context right so okay. i think you've been consulting dr google too much yeah there. Oh, well, that's, that's our <laughs> only doctor these wait, days wait you right? first told us to go to dr google and now you're saying don't listen too much to right. dr google so let's put it in context you oh. know anytime you encounter you know an infection a virus you develop antibodies your body mounts an immune response but that immune response isn't forever. Mm. So it does wane. And that's why, you know, we talk about immunization is to reboost that immune response so that when you encounter it, your armies are ready to handle this invader. That makes a lot of sense. Right. But what I'm talking about is not the immune system. It's the damage. So after all that inflammation or fire that's in the lungs and in other places, you know, we see it in the brain, you know, in biopsies of people who died from COVID. We see it in the heart. So it can seed all organs and how your body reacts to it. If it's inflamed, how does it heal from it? Unfortunately, you know, when it comes to the brain or the lungs, the regeneration power is diminishing as we're getting older. Mm -hmm. So when it scars, it just doesn't work. You may have the tissue, but the tissue is non-functional. So that's really the context you want to think about is if you're feeling palpitations, you have shortness of breath. You know, we have some athletes who had COVID and they say, oh, it's nothing. But when they get back to exercising, you know, they seem very limited. Wow. Yeah. And of course, when you <clears throat> test their lungs, you're going to go, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, we're limited in our time here today. I think we got to wrap this up, but I can't believe how much you've covered in this short period of time. You got to come back. We got to talk more about this. Yeah. I love the topic also about the children and all that, how that's such an important component, right? Because a lot of us have kids and how, you know, obviously that's affecting. And, and um, you know, again, please uh, reach out. Again, if you can share your website, that would be great. Yes, uh, mysleepmd.com. Mysleepmd.com. Follow Dr. John Saito. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And most importantly, thank you for everything you and your team. Let's give a shout out to your team, right? They're the, also hard workers. Thank you for all you guys have been doing because you are the true heroes of our community. We really appreciate everything you've done. 
Right. Well, I certainly want to thank my team. You know, they're very supportive and they understand and they put themselves at risk taking care of patients while we were open during COVID. And that's very admirable because, you know, they're not medical doctors. They're our medical staff. Mm-hmm. So it really um, is an amazing uh, team to have the attention and care. And I also want to thank my partner, Roxanne Chow, who's, you know, been a, a She's force. She's here. Roxanne Chow's here, right? Yes, and a so, driver in my community. Shout out to her. Yes, and so uh, I'm very grateful for her. Yes, and again, we'll love to have you back on the show. Please continue all success. And if there's anything that our Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce can do for you, we're always here for you. And also, real quick, I want to say Frank Garcia, who's one of our longtime members of our chamber, one of like our founders. I know you and him work a lot together with along with your partner here, Roxanne Chow, and 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 just thank you for all you guys did during the pandemic, the food drives, you know, helping the community. So thank you for that. We really appreciate that. It's our pleasure to support the community. All right. Take it away, Paul. Thank you, everybody, again for tuning in. We will see you next Wednesday, same time, same place, same OC Talk radio station. And thank you all for tuning in to our community podcast show powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Well, there you have it. One more reason to tune in each and every time to meet our community. As we said, powered by the Orange County Hispanic Chamber of Commerce and Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio. Streaming live from high atop our studios here at the University of California Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center.